Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. Now, I recognize that there are some circumstantial reasons that you might be saying to yourself, hmm, humbug. Um, But I need to acknowledge the goodness and the greatness of God and his glory and the fact that God has loved us. And God has loved us in ways that we cannot even wrap our hearts and minds around. And so you are beloved of God today, regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself. Um, I, I, I hope you not only believe that in your, uh, you know, in your head, but that you feel that in your heart. That you, um, you feel beheld and beholden of the Lord our God. That you feel seen, that you feel heard, that you, um, that you feel like your life rests in the very hollow of his hand. That you know that your name is inscribed there. Not, not in a way that could be, you know, that could be washed off, but in a way that's indelible. Um, by the very action of a nail. Your name is inscribed in the very hollow of the hand of the Lord our God. You are loved, and you are beloved, beloved. Uh, I have spent some time last evening with um, with some friends, and it just occurred to me that sometimes people just need to be reminded of that in the midst of all of the challenges of life, all of uh, sometimes just the daily grind of life. Sometimes as years pass and we feel as if life has passed us by or whatever opportunity we thought we were going to make good on, um, you know, that that opportunity is is now somewhere in the past. And we feel as if, you know, we missed our chance. You didn't miss your chance. Um, God is sovereign and God is good and God is great. And he has stored up for you eternal blessings in heaven. Um, And he is pouring out every spiritual blessing that's necessary for the accomplishing of his will in your life today. Um, And so as you are counting your blessings, let's be sure and count the ones that are maybe somewhat intangible. And yet they are very tangible. They bear on today. Let us count grace. Let us count joy. Let us count the peace that passes all understanding. Let us count the promise of eternity with the Lord our God. Let us count our blessings in these ways today. All right, next up, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. Uh, he and I are are going to go where um, oh, some fear to tread, but we must at least venture uh, venture forth because it is literally the headline news topping uh, topping every outlet and, and every conversation, and that is the impeachment proceedings in Washington, D.C. 
So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Well, <laughs> I don't even want to have this conversation. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about treading into the waters of impeachment yet again. Um, but I feel like it's a necessary conversation. It is the conversation that's being had across the country uh, and over literally every airway. And so I think that we as Christians must tend to it as well. I think I have reached the point where it is um, it's increasingly difficult to deny that uh, that something has happened that is contrary to the way that um, we have ordinarily done things as the United States of America. Uh, And I also think that it's increasingly difficult to um, uh, to imagine that uh, the Senate, dominated by Republicans, would remove the president, even if the House, dominated by Democrats, impeaches him. And so I really I, I'm I'm a frustrated American this morning, I think, is my is the word I'll use. I, I think that a lot of Americans are frustrated with a, a lot of things that have been happening in Washington on both sides of the aisle for a very long time. Uh, I have not uh, uh, particularly delved into impeachment a great deal, but uh, uh, watching the hearings yesterday, I watched for the first uh, couple of hours. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, particularly Sondland um, did not do himself any favors in the way that he continually said that everything was based on his presumption uh, of of a quid pro quo. I, he he stated it rather emphatically. Apparently, he had amended his original testimony. He said that something that was said down the line jogged his memory of an actionable quid pro quo. In his original testimony, there was not. So that will be uh, an issue that Senate Republicans who do not want to remove President Trump will will certainly discuss. And then uh, where he, he continually said that the, the president did not ask for a quid pro quo, but it was his presumption, will be the other thing that uh, that, that is uh, gone to in order to uh, uh, shoot, to see that the president is not removed uh, from office. So there's that. There's also the issue that um, uh, if the uh, Senate impeachment hearing is going on, Senators are not supposed to be campaigning, and you have several senators who want to be elected president. So uh, uh, if, if the uh, impeachment is slow walked out, uh, that could have a bearing on the race. And there are several uh, Democrats who might want to speed the process up, even if they know that it's a losing process, just they can get out on the campaign trail and try to uh, argue that the real impeachment would come uh, through removing him from office democratically. Which takes us to the Democratic debate last night. Uh, The Dems, um, at least several of them, uh, qualified, six of them, I think, qualified. uh, Well, I don't know. Am I right? Six have qualified for the December debate. How many people debated last night? You can tell I didn't watch it, right? I mean, I I can't keep up. You're you're a lucky person. No, Uh, 10 Democrats were on stage last night. (laughs) And uh, so, it, it, which is a winnowing, you know, the, the field was up to, I think, 20 or, or something like two dozen at one point. You had people like Swalwell and uh, Tim Ryan and others drop out of the race and endorse various candidates. So 
Uh, for the next one, it, it, and Marianne Williamson's no longer on the stage. She was always interesting to watch. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard may not qualify next time around. Tom Steyer. Uh, Cory Booker made an impassioned plea to try and get him on the stage. Uh, Julian Castro was not there this time. So uh, it, it looks as though we'll probably have six candidates next time. But the lion's share of the questions and the lion's share of the time went to Warren, Biden, Buttigieg, and uh, Saunders, and Sanders, who were, who were clearly the uh, the front runners here. Harris had a couple of good lines. Uh, Klobuchar had, uh, had some very favorable media coverage, but uh, she's she's very much trying to get into the moderate lane, which right now is dominated by Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, I thought that um, Klobuchar's, uh, you know, maybe like one line uh, highlight was if you think a woman can't beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every day. Like so they're they're yeah. they are looking to score. I mean, that does not help me understand a person's position. That does help me understand uh, how a person sees themselves as uh, as able to beat, uh, you know, beat the opponent, which if that is what Democrats are ultimately most concerned about, um, it is anybody's guess who among this list of candidates or maybe some other person they might pick. Well, like they say in sports on any given day. Mm. Uh, you know, so so uh, a candidate can make a gaffe uh, during the, the the home stretch of an election and end up totally changing the dynamic of the race. It's happened before, and it could certainly happen again. But uh, I, I think that uh, really you've seen a couple of things, which is uh, I think Biden is very much stuck in the past. When uh, they were talking about Medicare for all, he said the majority of of Democrats don't support it. In fact, poll after poll shows the majority of Democrats do. A, a political poll from a few months ago showed. Three out of four Democrats support a single payer health care system like the system in Canada. So uh, the majority of Americans do not support that. But the majority of primary voters who are going to be deciding who the candidate is certainly do. Uh, you also uh, saw Elizabeth Warren talk about uh, freeloading billionaires in her statement. And Cory Booker sort of took her on on the wealth tax. He said that it was cumbersome, uh, that it would it would uh, end up harming the economy long term. Because when you're taxing wealth, wealth is different than income. Income is what we get in our paycheck. You can squirrel that away or budget it. When it comes to wealth, you're talking about things like stock holdings, houses, paintings. Uh, billionaires or, or the like would end up selling off their assets in one way or the other. So there's a question of how do you evaluate how much uh, a certain uh, property or a certain uh, uh, painting or, or a certain stock is worth. And then second of all, if you sell it, that destroys the wealth of uh, the value of that stock because you, certain, you suddenly have a sell-off. And uh, when you have a sell-off in the stock market, the, the, the value plummets. So uh, there's, a, there's an issue of how much uh, the wealth tax itself would end up destroying wealth uh, in order to get a certain amount of revenue. And I think the idea that billionaires uh, are freeloaders is, is definitely not supported by tax tables. <laughs> it's the, the top 1% of uh, of uh, of households pay more than uh, pay about half of all federal taxes. Forty-four percent of Americans pay no income tax. So it's not clear to me that the billionaires who are who are paying uh, far and above their uh, percentage of total income uh, into the income tax uh, uh, are really freeloading the system. I'm Ben. I just I look at it all and I say it is absolutely anybody's game. I mean I, I don't I I have no. Um, uh, I look at that Democratic field and it continues to grow 
and uh, it's just anybody's game. All right, or anybody's guess, maybe. Maybe not anybody's I, I would agree, and I, I think Warren, made, Warren was asked about the role of pro-life Democrats, and I think that that's the one demographic that has no chance of, of uh, winning there. Even though they are winning around the country, like John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, the only reason he was reelected as governor, he has a very strong pro-life record. Uh, I know people in his administration, uh, when I was in the pro-life movement, we had contacts. Uh, he, he appears to be very sincere, or at least the actions match his rhetoric. And, um, you know, so you see a successful pro-life Democrat there. There have been successful pro-life Democrats in places like Pennsylvania and Indiana in the past. And uh, yet uh, when Elizabeth Warren was asked about their place in the party, she essentially read them out of the Democratic Party, uh, which is not a good position where you have a demographic of Americans who are increasingly pro-life. That's not good for their electoral position. More importantly, uh, that's certainly not good for uh, the uh, hundreds of thousands of children who are aborted every year around this country that doesn't uphold the value of the dignity of human life. No, and and if you're trying to reach in any way into uh, independence and or disaffected Republicans in terms of, you know, their search for a candidate um, to to absolutely just just say, look, if you're not pro-life, I don't want your vote. I mean, that's essential. I mean, so I, I don't know. I, it's it's. Hmm. I know I sound a little befuddled this morning. I am uh, I am dismayed by the willingness of politicians to write off entire segments of the population, um, and I see them doing it increasingly. And I I just I'm kind of surprised by it. All right, you and I are going to pivot um, after the break, and we're going to talk about um, Kanye, Chick Fil A, and authenticity. A piece you have posted at Acton.org. We'll be right back. Ben Johnson is here. He's one of my uh, favorite weekly conversation partners. One of the places that you can read what he is writing is at the Acton Institute, where he serves as a senior editor. Uh, And so I am looking at Acton.org at a piece that, uh, Ben, you uh, you have just recently posted, the title of which... Kanye West, Chick-fil-A, and the need for authenticity. So in terms of clickbait, Kanye West and Chick-fil-A, big, big clickbait right now. So, uh, so kudos to you on having a headline that is, you know, is going to pop in terms of Google searches. Well, thank you for exposing my entire <laughs> Machiavellian use of that headline, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kanye West and Chick-fil-A, if I were to um, have said a year ago that uh, today— American Christians are going to hold Con- Kanye West in higher esteem than Chick-fil-A. You would have probably tried to correct me, but I'm not wrong. Yeah, uh, that's it, it's a bizarre cultural transformation that's happened of these two figures. Kanye West, who, who used to have vulgar rap lyrics and things of that sort, uh, came through and he's been very open about the, the mental distress that he's suffered and how Christ has helped him find hope at the end of his rope, as Jesus has for so many people through the ages. He ended up releasing his gospel CD, Jesus is King, debuted at number one. He had seven singles on the top 40 at the same time uh, in the debut week of November 9th. So uh, he's obviously uh, done quite well. He was at Joel Osteen's church this past weekend, and he performed for inmates uh, in prison, fulfilling Matthew 25. So I I think that when when you look at that, there's a lot of authenticity to the walk, and when he's asked about issues like the dignity of human life or uh, his walk with Jesus, he speaks articulately, he speaks passionately from the heart, and the actions and the rhetoric are matching up, at least for now. And so there's, there's authenticity there. 
When it comes to Chick-fil-A, owned by the Kathy family, they have a long history, very uh, clearly tied to the Southern Baptist uh, tradition with uh, the founder, Truett Cathy, uh, the fact that they're closed on Sundays. But then beginning in 2012, when Dan Cathy, the CEO, spoke out in favor of marriage, you had Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, where hundreds of thousands of people lined up. You know, uh, We covered it at the time I was in the, the news media. There were lines that just went down the block in some cases uh, for people standing up supporting uh, a restaurant that supported their values. But now they've decided they will uh, defund the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which they're uh, funding from, from their, uh, their own charitable organization, from the family. And the only discernible reason is that both groups are under fire because of their position on LGBT issues, uh, upholding the, the traditional Christian sexual mores. Particularly for the Salvation Army, they were under fire from the city of New York because they wouldn't allow men who identify as women to spend uh, overnight in their communal sleeping and shower facilities in women's shelters. So the authenticity there, there are a lot of people who are saying, I've supported you, I've gone to bat for you, uh, I've... I've culturally identified with you, and now I'm questioning what your values are and whether you value me. Uh, and, and that's really the bottom line. Kanye West is displaying a lot of authenticity, which is one of the most important things that people identify with when they shop. They want to see uh, whether the actions line up. And particularly, young people value this as one of their highest values in multiple uh, social, social studies and so on. When they ask millennials, what's important to you? They say, I want, I want to deal with someone who's authentic. You know, uh, and they, they often do this in terms of the corporations and, and products that they patronize. But they want to know that the person they're dealing with believes what they say they believe. When the actions and the rhetoric line up, then then uh, people will reward that. And that's what you're seeing with Kanye West. That's why you're seeing a lot of people question uh, the commitment of uh, the Salvation Army at this time, or the, the commitment of uh, Chick-fil-A to the Salvation Army and the uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Now... Just as a reminder, in 2012, Chick-fil-A also said that it was going to stop uh, funding controversial organizations with its uh, dollars. And, of course, it still has a, a good relationship with many Christian organizations. So it could be that this is a pivot or it could be that this is uh, just a PR bump and things will return to normal. Uh, we'll, we'll see how things go. But uh, Kanye West shows us there's always room for a prodigal to come home. And I hope that Chick-fil-A will. So uh, one of the one of the ways, uh, Ben, that, you know, I'm looking at people's actions, right? Do their actions align? I think this is your authenticity point. Like I'm looking, you know, do Kanye West's actions line up with what's coming out of his mouth? Um, because there there would be there would have been at least at some point questions about whether or not this is a PR stunt. I think it's gone on too long uh, and it has too many facets and it's too deep and too rich to uh, be relegated to the pile, to the heap of uh, of publicity stunts. He's um, he's already working on a second uh, Jesus is King album. And in addition to going to very high profile places like the Lakewood Church um, to speak to tens of thousands of people, he also went to the Harris County Jail to speak to inmates. And uh, and so I do I see his actions lining up with his words. The other one other indicator for me is, is this a person who is um, is turning the spotlight away from himself and onto others as a part of of what he's doing. And um, he gave an interview to Rolling Stone in in their issue, which is going to be um, the magazine's 100 Greatest Artists. And and for Kanye West to turn the focus away from himself and onto another artist, another hip hop artist whose name is Dre, 
Um, he talks about having met Dre um, for the first time in December 2003. And Kanye West says, at first I was starstruck, but within 30 minutes I was begging him to mix my next album. Um, he is the definition. He's talking here about, you know, another person. He here is a definition of a true talent. Drew feels like God placed him here to make music. And no matter what forces are aligned against him, he always ends up on the mountaintop. Um, I think that as we as we pray for the influence that God is giving this individual, like, right, he has given him a platform that the platform is now being leveraged for the advancement of the gospel. I have to celebrate that. I have to fan that flame. Um, if I am going to you know, be acknowledging that God does things differently than I have come to expect. Yes, and and God works through imperfect people because I that's know. the only kind He has to work through, <laughs> uh, and and that includes you and me. No matter no matter what we may uh, ascribe uh, aspire to, the fact of the matter is that we're all fallen, and uh, so I think we need to pray for Kanye West. We need to pray that this conversion takes deep root and uh, that good fruit comes of this. Uh, you know, whether this is a PR stunt, I don't believe that uh, it is for the same reasons that you do. Even if it is, uh, for, for reasons that he manages to hide unbelievably well, uh, and they are known only to him, uh, even if it is, good fruit is coming of this. So uh, I, celebrate, I celebrate what good is coming from this, and I pray that it will be uh, deep and lifelong that will usher him and many into the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's doing good work here, and I pray that uh, it's the seed of uh, the beginning of a, a new entrance into the kingdom for many. Absolutely. All right. Hey, Ben Johnson, thanks so much, as always, for joining us today. You guys can check out what Ben is writing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. We'll be right back. Jesus is Lord. All right. So are you in the midst of a storm in your life, or do you feel as if your life is adrift feel like you're not anchored, feel like you're just floating along. Um, John Mark Hicks is going to be here next. Uh, he has written a new book, Anchors for the Soul, How to Trust God in the Storms of Life. Uh, and this is actually the second edition of a book that he published in 2001. It's updated and includes uh, his story interweaving uh, absolutely what the Bible has to say about suffering. He does not give pat answers. This is intended for sufferers who uh, not only want to be comforted, but want to comfort other sufferers. So if you're in the midst of a storm, you know someone in the midst of a storm, this conversation is for you. You know what I love about Thanksgiving? Of course, the wonderful food, but there's something that's even more special about this holiday. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. For me, it's the focus on gratitude that makes Thanksgiving so beautiful. You give thanks to God for all that you have, and you celebrate by gathering together. And you eat the food that He has abundantly provided. But what if you looked at Thanksgiving as a daily event? Now, I'm not saying you should cook a turkey or make a pumpkin pie every day, but do make a conscious effort to remain grateful. Thank God every day for what He's given you. Your health, a roof over your head, plenty of food to eat. Even in difficult times, you can still be thankful for all of your blessings. So say a simple prayer of thanks to God on Thanksgiving and every other day of the year. And if you'd like more tools to help you be grateful this holiday season, visit Thrivent.com slash holidays. And happy Thanksgiving. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes? 
Welcome back. I'm thrilled to be joined today by John Mark Hicks. Among other things, he's the author of Anchors for the Soul, and that's our conversation topic today. But uh, Professor Hicks and I could be talking about any number of things. He is a professor of theology, and he has a rich life experience. Um, we could range around uh, in terms of, of topics here. But um, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you, Carmen. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning. Just delightful to have you. I know you teach at Lipscomb. Um, what are you? Uh, what What is your favorite course to teach? Maybe not what are you teaching now, but what's your favorite course to teach? Well, my favorite course is kind of God, creation, new creation, where I take students to the whole story of the Bible in a theological way to think theologically about who God is, what God is doing, and how God is forming us and shaping us through the story of Jesus and through the story of the church, as well as the story of Israel. So that's my favorite course. It's kind of a biblical, theological kind of course. Oh, and it's a big one. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Sometimes when I talk to to professors, their favorite course is something that's really (laughs) small and narrow, like, right? They're like, you know, I'm really down at this like tidbit level of a thing. And so it's it's fun that the one you love to teach is like the big, broad brushstroke one. Right. I think it's important to have the big story in mind. As we experience life day to day, we need to find a way to find ourselves in the story of God, to see where we are in this big arc of God's work in the world from creation to new creation. And so that's why it's one of my favorite courses. Yeah, I talk about the redemptive arc frequently and finding ourselves in it. So oh. uh, so yeah, so you and I definitely resonating. Okay, so today we're going to specifically talk about your new book, which is Anchors for the Soul. Um, and I'm going to start this way. I'm going to describe you as a man who is well acquainted with grief. And I'm going to let you tell that story. Well acquainted with grief. Um, Well, everybody has their own versions of grief. We all have losses of different kinds. And so my own particular story goes back to when I was 22 years old and when my first wife suddenly died. When um, she was 25, I was 22. But we didn't expect this death. It it happened just out of the blue. Uh, And it crushed me. And I, I didn't know what to do with that. I'd never even been to one or but one or two funerals before that. So I didn't know what to do with this grief. I had only had kind of this utopian life up to that point. And so I feel like God betrayed me. I feel like God didn't hold up God's part of the deal, right? So that kind of crushing loss set me on a journey of seeking God in the midst of grief. Uh, eventually I remarried and we had a child, had three children, actually. But the middle child, Joshua, um, we knew early on that something was wrong. You know, he wasn't developing in the same way that other children were, delayed in a lot of ways. We went to psychologists, we went to uh, doctors, pediatricians, and finally a, a pediatric neurology nurse looked at him, just looked at him and said, you need to take him to a pediatric neurologist. And we found out he had a genetic condition, a terminal genetic condition. And uh, we watched him slowly die for about 10 years. And that was an excruciating kind of pain to, to not only lose your dreams that this child holds for you and for, for the child's own sake, um, but to watch that slow deterioration, the loss of I mean, every day was kind of a, a death in one sense because it was a loss of 
the ability to talk, the loss of the ability to walk, the, you know, just losing things all along the way. Um, and so his, he died at 16. And those two are the major events in my life in terms of uh, acute grief. Um, we all have all kinds of sorts of grief in between those. But those moments really brought me face to face with God and particularly who God is and what can I say to God? How can I talk to God about this? And why would I want to talk to God about this? Um, a lot of anger, frustration, resentment toward God. Um, so that's, those are the two major events in my life that provide the context for my processing grief. I am talking with John Mark Hicks. We're, we're, we're actually talking about his new book, Anchors for the Soul, and it is about trusting God in the midst of storms, in the storms of life. Um, so thank you for, for sharing and inviting us into the reality of grief, because everybody walks there, but not everybody chooses to then, then walk with God there. Not everyone yeah. chooses to seek God in the midst of that. And I feel like what you are inviting us to do is to trust God, even in those moments when we are mad at him or we resent something that has happened or we are deeply confused. Um, In the midst of the realities of grief, you are inviting Mm -hmm. us to hold fast to the one who holds fast. That's my sense of what this book is about. Yes, and and. And I think that's exactly right. Learning how to trust God or learning to trust God. And it's a difficult path. It's not an easy, it's not an easy path at all. But once we in, involve ourselves in the story of God and we see the large arc of God, that God loves us and that God listens to us, God is willing to hear our deepest hurts and our deepest pains and our even our anger and bitterness, just like God listened to Job. So God loves us and God listens to us, but also the story of Jesus tells us that God empathizes with us, that God didn't just stay on the outside of suffering, but God became a a participant in suffering and walked with us and sat with us in the funeral home, you might say, and died with us. So that even on the cross, what we have is is the model for how one can ask God questions my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22. And at the same time, with their dying breath, say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, quoting Psalm 31. So in Jesus, we see this model of one who asks the questions and is not afraid to ask the questions. They're real questions. Why? But at the same time, trust that God is bigger than this piece of my story, that that God has more going on than just what's happening in my life, and that God understands what's happening in my life. God empathizes with that, shared it in Jesus. So the the whole movement of the ark, as you call it, uh, God loves, God listens, and God understands, also turns into a kind of God reigns, right? Mm. Because Jesus is raised from the dead and is exalted to the right hand of God, and therefore God's going to win. Amen. So those are the five anchors that kind of anchor my faith in the midst of the storms. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, I'm going to ask uh, Professor Hicks, you know, there's there's sometimes that anchors can feel like they're weighing us down or even dragging us down. 
And we're going to talk about this image of an anchor that actually holds us secure. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation now with Professor John Mark Hicks. He teaches at Lipscomb University. He is the author of many books, but we're going to talk today about Anchors for the Soul. How is it that we trust God in the midst of the storms of life? Um, And we've talked about grief and we've talked about its weight. And you use the image of anchors and you talk about these anchors that are found in God. Um, That's really the substance of the book. But I think that there are the image of an anchor can either be like positive or negative. Like I might see an anchor as that which is going to drag me down, not that which is going to secure me. So talk about the way you are using the term anchor in this book. Yes, I I see that point. Anchor could be used for something, uh, you know, we're going to throw it into the ocean and and, uh, it's going to disappear, uh, right? But but the way I want to use the anchor, the the metaphor uh, for me is of a ship that is being tossed in the waves of the sea. It's up and down, and it's on the verge of sinking. The ship is going to sink. This is the ship of faith, as I, as I use the metaphor. We, have, uh, we are traveling through life on the ship of faith, and the waves, the suffering comes in waves, and the grief comes in waves, and it's going to overwhelm the boat. It's going to sink the boat. So how do we find stability? And anchors are a way of putting down anchors for security, for stability, to say, okay, this wave is going to hit me. But here's something I know, and here's something that will keep me secure and will stabilize me in the midst of the storm so that my ship doesn't crash against the rocks. Um, so the, the point of the anchor is to give the stability to faith, that faith can find a path in the midst of the grief, that finds security, even though we're overwhelmed with grief at times, we can still find security in remembering these anchor points and secure our faith to who God is and what God is doing in the world. So there's the holidays are, I think, a particularly difficult time for those who are grieving. I I also think that even as the years pass by, sometimes we have the expectation that somebody should be over that by now. And grief doesn't work that way. So I'd like for you to do two things. One, give people permission Christians in particular, but give people um, permission to grieve, like whatever stage of that they're in, um, and then also invite others um, to enter into grief during this holiday season in a way that actually serves those who are grieving. Right. Yeah, those are good questions. You know, on the first one, permission to grieve. Sometimes Christians are too triumphalistic. You know, God's going to win. But God hasn't won yet in one sense, right? Because death is still here. The enemy is still around. Christ is going to reign until the last enemy is destroyed. So that enemy is still around. And death is still something that hurts. Grief and loss are still something that hurts. And what we have in the story of Israel and in the story of Jesus as well um, is the invitation to lament. The Psalms are there. The church sang the Psalms and prayed the Psalms. Jesus prayed the Psalms, and these Psalms, half of them are laments. So we encourage, I want to invite people into the reading of the Psalms and the praying of the Psalms 
as a means of lamenting. That's how I learned to lament. And there are other ways to lament too. It's not the only way. But what the Psalms do as the, with their presence in Scripture is it gives us permission to lament because Israel worshipped with these songs. Israel prayed these songs. They sang them in the temple. And Jesus sang them and quoted them. And we can do that too. When we don't have the words to say something to God, and we're afraid to say something to God, let's use the words of God. How long, O oh Lord? How long must I have sorrow in my heart every day? Will you forget me forever? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why don't you take your hands out of your pocket and do something? Those are the words of the Psalms. And that gives us permission. We don't have to feel guilty when we grieve. We can grieve, we can grieve with hope, but we can still grieve as well because we have lost something and the loss is real. We don't want to minimize the loss or say, get over the loss. No, that loss is real. And like waves on a sea, they keep coming back at us at times, even when we're not expecting it. And particularly when we're not expecting it, it will get triggered by something and that wave will come back upon us. And that happens pretty um, you know, it happens often at holiday season. And that's why when we are with people who are who have a recent grief or a, or a loss that is triggered, it may be 10 years ago, but it's triggered by this Christmas event or this Thanksgiving event. We need to sit alongside of them. And what I counsel in the book is that when we sit with sufferers, when we sit with people who have experienced loss, we sit, first of all, in presence. We're with them. Secondly, we're silent. We're listening to them. Be present, be silent. And as a silent person, listen to what's going on. Listen to their hurt. Don't try to shut them up. Don't try to shut them down. Don't try to change the subject. You know, when we, when we change the subject, we're actually saying, I'm uncomfortable talking about this. We, we might think, I'll, I'll, I don't want them to go you know, go crazy, or I don't want them to cry, or I don't want them to get all upset. So I'm going to change the subject. So let's talk about the ball game. When in fact, what they really want to talk about is the grief. And do I have the love for them to listen to their grief and to enter into their pain with them? And I think that's what Christians are called to. We're not called to shut people up. That's what Eliphaz does to Job, right? He tries to shut him up. What we are called to is to be like God, and God listens to that grief, and God becomes present to that grief, and God enters into that grief in Jesus Christ and in other ways as well. I would describe that as, you know, first of all, incarnational, right, being, oh, being present, actually it. showing up, and then relational, right, which is putting, putting the needs or concerns of the other ahead of myself— um, exactly. And then I'm I'm prayerfully hoping that there's going to be something transformational, but that part is not my responsibility. That's between, you know, the mm. Holy Spirit and the individual with whom I am sitting present on mm. behalf of Christ. And so, yeah, thank you so very much for um, for that language, for that invitation, for that challenge, um, for that encouragement. The book is Anchors for the Soul. The author is John Mark Hicks. Uh, he's a professor at Lipscomb University. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a joy to be here. Bless, blessed holiday season. Same for you. 
Thanks. We'll be right back. Thank you. So I think the the realities of life. Um, I mean, we are at times swamped. I think the word that I used a few weeks ago was the question of whether or not we're whelmed or we're just overwhelmed. Am I whelmed by grace? I mean, do I let the grace of God wash over me when I feel overwhelmed by the things that are happening in my life or in my family or in the world around me? So I want to be whelmed today. I want to be whelmed by grace, not just overwhelmed by what's happening in the world around me. And in order for me to be, you know, like whelmed, like positively, uh, wow, positively awash in grace. I, I do need to have a, a godly, eternal perspective on what is happening in the world. I need to recognize this redemptive arc. I need to recognize this meta narrative. I need to recognize that the universe is personal. God is real. Uh, God is engaged. God has a plan. He has a perspective. And it's not all about me. It's not all about me. Um, so you may be feeling today like, you know, it's all about you. That's positive or negative. It's all about you. Um, but maybe just shift slightly and ask the question, what if it's really all about God? What if everything that's happening around me is really about God? How might that change my day and the way that I live in it? All right, we've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.